Welcome to Story Talking, episode 41. My name is Laksh, I started Launchora, and I host this podcast where I talk to a new storyteller every week. This week, my guest is Orko Mukhopadhyay, and this is one of those conversations which I have to say, I, I felt like I was just talking to an artist, this guy. Orko is 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 a performer. He's a teacher. He's a poet. He he he's an artist. He he trains people, uh, actors, performers, and theater. Travels all over uh, India and internationally. He's um, currently his base is in Kerala, and we had this conversation while he was in Kolkata. And I will apologize a little, just some parts of the conversation because we were using Skype and we were a little technologically challenged. Uh, we're, not, we're not great, but I tried to fix that. So it should be a smooth conversation. I hope you guys really sick, w- listen to the whole thing because we go, we go on a journey in this one. We, we start with where he grew up and what kind of uh, influences he had as he was growing up, how he stumbled into engineering and then found theater uh eventually and how he creates his his workshops why he wants to teach people what is the hamlet dance that was a question that i had before i wanted to talk to him and then he answered that uh to beyond my satisfaction levels uh and yeah we just we just talk about the the creative mind and is it is it something that is individual or is it something that is that is one that is that's like a pool that's that's something that we all draw from so hope you guys enjoy this conversation i really really love talking to orko uh you can find him on linkedin and he has you can see some of his performances on youtube you spell his name a r k a i and he told me it's pronounced orko just when you google him and stuff uh so i hope you guys enjoy this a little tidbit uh, before I, I show I uh, play the full conversation for you here. Uh, if you are listening to this anytime before July first, I just want to say that uh, we. If you are a Launchora user, you already know this, but I'm just t- talking to anyone who doesn't know this yet. We are completing four years of Launchora on July first. Thank you very much. I know I know you said congratulations. That's why I'm saying it over here because you know I'm recording this, so we're not talking live. This isn't a proper. This isn't a phone conversation. Uh, but thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I I did self congratulate myself, and I kind of made you feel bad for not congratulating me the first time. I know. So, yeah, but we are completing four years on July first. I can't believe it. I am so much older than I was when I started this thing. It was. It was it was a different time, um, but I'm very very excited because we are hosting our first ever community event at our office in Gurgaon slash Gurugram. If you're gonna Google it, because that sounds better and it's our our city's new name. Uh, I hope that if you live anywhere near New Delhi, Gurgaon uh, outskirts of this area, if you live with a train's distance. Do come by. It's a free event. Tell your friends. If you like writing, if you like storytelling, we're, I'm going to do a little workshop about, about storytelling. We're going to have 
games we're going to have just a whole session where you can write and just just be a part of of a communal experience with fellow storytellers and uh the only thing i would say just register and let us know if you're coming the link is somewhere in the universe yeah just you'll find it on our facebook page you'll find it oh if you're listening to this obviously on our website or app just go to the playground and the link is there uh but i hope i hope to see you there it is a limited gathering so please just register anytime before the event and we will welcome you with open arms also if you know me already then you know i like surprises and that i like to give them not receive them i do not like receiving surprises uh we are going to have a major announcement at the event which i'm not going to spoil for you so be there and if you happen to not live anywhere near us i'm not going to force you to buy a ticket and and come there uh we will eventually post something online let's just let's just say it there yeah i don't want you to miss the event but we will say something about it eventually um back to the episode thank you for letting me have that little tidbit of self promotion it is the i mean you know launcher is the sponsor of this podcast so i got to mention it sometimes thank you uh i hope you guys enjoy this episode this is episode 41 of story talking with orko mukopatya um the first 19 odd years of my life right. uh and then i went down to bangalore i was there for the next years i completed my schooling here graduated okay. from high right. school and i then went down to study engineering of all things <laughs> engineering is like a rite of passage i think for a lot of a lot of indians i almost i almost dabbled yes, in it for a couple of years Yeah, so I also dropped out. I did not finish it. Uh, I mean, I was more of a physics uh, geek in high school, so mm. engineering wasn't really about it. Uh, I was actually trying to get to the U.S. for my undergrads and kind of you know do a, a B.S. in physics, which did not happen. Right. Um, managed not to get enough financial aid and all of that. Right. In the process. Um, messed up my school like the, the board exams as we call them here right, i mean right. i kind of kept getting all the rejection letters uh, so i had like really this is way before computerized sats so it was still the age of uh, late 90s so yeah, the, the age yeah. of paper based sats and all and i had pretty good well beyond pretty good scores in both the one and the two so i kind of naively assumed that you know i was going to walk into yeah. better colleges and stuff and I had my sights set on Princeton for whatever reason and then I kept getting all the rejection letters like before shortly before my board exams so yeah, kind yeah. of went to break down and so engineering was sort of a fallback thing I mean because to be fair doesn't as though my parents kind of forced me into it like most other Indian parents right. but once i went and took the test and then i was kind of like you know no i don't think i really want to do this but at that point of time they were like no you chose it so you better go ahead yeah with it uh yeah so i went for that but i didn't finish it i uh, dropped out after about three years and but then i stayed on in the city i'd already started working 
was moonlighting along with college. And then I also got into theater around the same time. So all of this is around 2002, around that right. time. Yeah. And yeah. growing up, uh, what kind of, what, what's the environment in your house like? What, do you, like, what were your parents, uh, what, what did they do? What were they doing back then? Um, so it was just a family of three, uh, just my parents and me, because I don't have any siblings. Right. And um, it was, they were liberal enough in their own way. Um, and at the same time, I mean, you know, they were also products of their times and their upbringing. So a lot of things looking back now from our right current perspective might appear to be restrictive or conservative. Um, it's not allowed to watch Bollywood films until I was 12 or 13 or something, because those right. were for adults or whatever, so stuff yeah. like that, which uh, I don't think did too much harm. It might just have been a good thing. That, right, right. Yeah, it's, it's not the just best to read to be like, open to. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, I did do enjoy the golden era yeah. uh bollywood so you were 80s Back you, you were born in the 80s you you so you your teenage years okay so your teenage years were the 90s my teenage years were the 90s yes uh, uh with the kind of films like later on as an adult you know what it shows for my own tastes were the films from the 50s 60s uh up to the 70s not really the films that were being made in my own lifetime right right so Yes, which I still enjoy. I mean, you know, the, uh, the I mean, that's why I said golden yeah, yeah. era. So, but talking about environment at home, for one thing, uh, one thing I was really encouraged to do was uh, to read, read, and read as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, it's a bit of a Bengali yeah. thing, but uh, no, I really was encouraged to read. So that's really, I would say that that was kind of, you know, the formative um, factor, uh, yeah, which yeah. kind of made me the person I am for the rest of my life, because, yeah, I was kind of insatiable, I'd just read up whatever. And there was a very eclectic um, collection of books at home, also from, like, you know, Bengali literature to world literature to Shakespeare to whatever. So I remember suddenly getting my hands on Shakespeare when I was maybe five or six years old, not understanding a word wow. of it, but just sitting around <laughs> with stuff like that. Right. Yeah. yeah. So if there was like one defining feature of childhood because I wasn't really into sports or anything physical, which is funny because given that I work so much with the body now, yeah, but yeah. growing up or into my mid to late twenties, I mean, not at all. I wish a typical, you know, um, geeky kid with glasses when I got my glasses I was like 10 years old or something right. uh, so books books and more books that kind of you know um, developed this this habit of curiosity of wanting to know wanting to assimilate which in many ways still sort of defines me so of course it started more as information right when I was right. in school I was still you know heavily into quiz shows which were a big thing um yeah. back in the end of the 90s and stuff i mean during school's quizzing team we were a bit of a rock star instead yeah, of yeah. being in the athletics or whatever so <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um so that and yeah i mean much before theater again given the 
both the the actual real cultural uh, environment of Calcutta as also a kind of a self-conscious cultural aspiration or presentation. Um, so, ev- I mean, you know, Calcutta, you know, every kid does something of the other. Huh. So I grew up doing a lot of um, what we very fondly called elocution, so this quaint colonial right. term, basically like, you know, public speaking and stuff. So, yeah, even before I got into theatre, I got into theatre when I was maybe around 12 years old or something, but from much younger, I uh, I was like quite comfortable being on stage right. um, because, yes, I mean, I was like, you know, into this public speaking thing and recitation, like, you know, you just go up on stage and recite poems and stuff. It's sort of a homegrown Calcutta version of spoken words. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then came, uh, I mean, theater wasn't really a, that big a thing when, I mean, you know, until the time I left, it, I only got serious about it when I was in Bangalore as an as a young adult. I mean, right. here I was just doing it like in the community, more in in the community than in in school. I mean, here again, I don't know if you've been to the city, but uh, again, there's this sort of strong cultural. Uh, I mean, like every neighborhood would keep hosting programs and this and that. I mean, somebody's birth, as in some great soul's birthday or the yeah. other, so there'd be memorial programs, usually at Tagore or other poets and stuff. So uh, there's always something or the other being organized at a very local neighborhood level. Right. And there would usually be some school or two for the arts where all the local kids would go with it for singing or painting or drama and all of that. So, mm. Uh, so that's kind of, you know, the, the environment. Uh, so I grew up in, um, I would say the first 10 years of my life, at least in uh, an environment which probably hadn't changed much in the two or three decades before my time. Right. Even the major change happened in the 90s, obviously. I mean, usually, you know, liberalization and opening up and then satellite TV coming in. Yeah. Uh, that's when I was like 12, 13 years old. Yeah. So the 80s, um, they were kind of, um, they had this old world. I mean, again, looking back now from, you know, my vantage, they had this old world thing about them. Um, those things were a lot more conservative, but also a lot simpler in many ways. That's yeah. something that one probably misses. Few yeah, complications. the world was just smaller. Calcutta especially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, it was. You, you know, everybody knew everybody. Yeah. Um, you really were connected to your neighbors. They weren't uh, people behind closed doors. To date, I've never lived in an apartment. I mean, other than when I've lived briefly in Delhi and stuff, but I've never really lived in an apartment in Calcutta. Even now, although that has changed so much, it's more about houses. So you usually have like two or three story houses and. The ground was uh, let out. Yeah, yeah. So that's how we was grown up. So yeah, there was a sense of yeah. So uh, it was only like yeah, again around the time that I was eight, nine, ten years old that um, all these uh, small or not so small apartment complexes coming up, mushrooming all around the city, that became a thing. And of course, you know, they were um, illegally. Um, dumping ponds and water bodies or demolishing lovely old houses and uh, constructing the place so the sense of indignation etc so the 
kind of remember that like so this mushrooming of apartments at that time was something that people looked upon with a little bit of disgust honestly yeah. this would be 88 89 90 around that time and the general thing would be that how how do people live in like pigeon holes quite literally uh, what we call them in bangla at that time remember yeah so uh, i mean it's the parties writ kind of ran into every aspect and every level of life and uh, covertly or overtly controlled uh, everything i mean if you were a school teacher you had to subscribe to their union or you posted to some boom talks and uh, i mean it was pretty right. much like it infiltrated every aspect of life so like i say it was like growing up in a typical communist republic yeah, yeah. so there would be self appointed um you know gardens of, of morality and propriety at the neighborhood level also who would be like the local party um honchos uh who kind of uh, decide what's right for everybody and what's what and uh, this and then it's not just it's, it wasn't something that you could question if you did uh, things would turn up turn out to uh, well for you um all of that and living with like six eight hour long power cuts especially on summer nights right. etc so what were the uh, cons there were the pros but yeah if there were eight hour long um power cuts those also you know uh people selling flowers every evening so uh i mean one of the memories of childhood would be uh freshly uh, watered um jasmine or uh yeah night rose whatever so again things that we don't get in that way anymore yeah yeah mm. the mm. you said that so you you got into theater performing theater when you were when you were 12 or something right is that what you said yeah around that time around, you, at the neighborhood level then right sure. Do you remember the first time you you saw the theater like saw a performance? The first time I saw a performance would have been much earlier because uh, yeah 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 that would have been much earlier see theater again I think in two cities in this country Calcutta and Bombay because these are the two languages which developed the first modern uh that is to say western influenced theaters in India back right. in the 1860s so Marathi theater and uh bengali theater and then of course in bombay parsi and gujarati theater also developed same time so uh, it is something that you grow up with as part of your general cultural consciousness so i was always aware of the of theater as right. such specifically the first time i probably watched a play um which my parents would have taken me along to would have been maybe when i was 5 or 6 years old Okay. around that yeah. time and did it so it totally makes sense of, like all of this at this idea of people telling stories yeah. up on a stage i think i was kind of neutral to it at that point of time it wasn't like i was completely enamored of it hmm. um right then nor was it that i you know repelled by it or something it was just another cultural thing like there were music concerts and dance recitals right. and so on and so forth so it was just another thing so yeah i don't think i 
thought too much about it one way or another until the time that, um, I mean, it was kind of a natural extension. Like I said, that it started more with, you know, oratory and uh, yeah. recitation. And from that to uh, children's theater was a uh, sort of a natural progression. At that point, of course, yes, I kind of immediately got into it and really started enjoying it and all that. Right. And then when you were doing the engineering, you say you were still active in the community, uh, with the theater community in Bangalore. Oh, no, 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 no. Um, so this was like a complete uh, and sudden change of uh, geography, culture, everything. So the first year and a half or so, I was in a huge culture shock in Bangalore. I mean, okay. didn't speak right. the language, uh, different food habits, people dressed differently, everything. I mean, you know, the north and south of yeah, India. Yeah. It's like, yeah, as a young student, I mean, we all are a bit, I mean, I don't mince words, so we all are a bit racist towards each other. That's as yeah. true of people from the south coming to the north as it was. So as a student, um, as a quote-unquote North Indian uh, student in Bangalore, staying alone or whatever, we faced a lot of uh, condescension, um, yeah. lack of inclusivity. Although I had excellent friends in college, they kind of opened up the place and the culture to me because um, it so happened that just about the only people that I could speak with in college uh, as in who were on the same wavelength were also these hardcore metal heads. Bangalore was probably the metal capital yeah, of the yeah. country at uh, 90s and also I, I reached there in 99. Yeah, so you know these people were into like death metal and stuff. Um, but these were also the guys who, which I wasn't into. I wasn't into that at all. I mean, uh, my introduction to uh, Western musical culture, for that matter, was slightly late. Again, when I was maybe 11, 12 or something. And then I was equally into classical uh, music, I, which I discovered for myself somehow because my parents were not at all into Western classical music. I somehow discovered it myself. I don't quite remember how, but then got completely hooked to it. Right. At the same time, I was into, well, pop. And I mean, more than anything else, I was like, crazy about Michael Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, growing up in the 80s and 90s. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Hard, it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> completely, completely crazy about him. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, uh, heavy metal, etc. I mean, that stuff was new to me, but it's just that these guys were also the most well-read people with whom I could speak uh, with about books and stuff and exchange books. And so then it was kind of a natural progression. I also got into the whole metal scene, um, etc. So there, that way I kind of started finding community. But talking about theater, no. So because, uh, you know, it was this complete uh, uprooting and shift. So it took a while. Uh, started more with these college festivals, fests hmm. that we uh, have, um, and uh, more little skits and stuff. And then, yeah, um, uh, the Bangalore college scene does not really have uh, a theater uh, scene as the Delhi University thing does. So, um, uh, I, as I kind of started connecting more, going out and around more, um, I kind of got into uh, very amateur hobby theater um, outside of college. 
So one also has to remember that in Bangalore also it's a very language-specific thing, which is yeah. true in Calcutta as well. I mean, now that I look at it from that perspective, that just shows that here I was on the inside. It's equally difficult for somebody coming from elsewhere without, because all theatre in Calcutta is in Bengali, there's really no English theatre at all. Bangalore has very strong Karna theatre, which obviously I had no access to. Yeah. And then it, at that time, the English theatre scene was kind of enthusiastic, but very, very amateur, hmm. um, which is what I started with. Uh, that's what I started with, like, whilst I was still in college, uh, on the cusp of deciding to drop out uh, whatever it was around that time that I kind of got involved. So this was, again, 2002, 2003. I got involved with um, some, like, mostly people in college, maybe a few who were a little older, etc., just randomly deciding to, you know, put up plays. Yeah. That's how it started as an adult, I mean, post-school, post-childhood in Kakasa. And then it just got more and more serious um, and to the point that it kind of became, like, you know, a, a profession, a vocation, everything so when you dropped out you already knew that theater was the direction you were going into not necessarily i was a little uh, no at that time i wasn't so heavily into i mean i was doing it yes and i was i was enjoying it a lot i was quite serious about it yes i wasn't necessarily sure that that is what I, i was like that it was going to become it, so right, to say. Right. At that time, I was also equally into writing. I mean, I was quite seriously writing poetry, primarily, right. to the point that I kind of started getting recognized as one of the upcoming voices in Indian English poetry, which isn't saying much because there are probably 20 people, but anyhow. Right. Um, but then there came time when... I felt, I mean, it's just a very individual thing because there are people who are fantastic at doing two or more things, but um, I felt that if one was really looking at it as, you know, serious craft or whatever, then I could do one or the other. Right. So it was around 10 years ago, around um, 2008, that uh, I kind of gave up on poetry right. for theatre. But I was recognized first for my writing um, before, uh, you know, my theater work got any sort of recognition or validation. I mean, I was doing both side by side. Right. And at that point of time, uh, as a profession, I was actually also into training like uh, for... Uh, uh, corporations, etc. But that was a very basic level of, I mean, this is when Bangalore was, uh, um, you know, the capital of the BPO industry, which is a sunrise industry yeah. and all that. So it was into force and accent training and communications, etc. But not the way I do it now. I mean, it's like, I, I was, even at that time, I was trying to integrate, like, whatever I was learning in my theatrical journey, I was trying to integrate that, and I found that a lot was already there. Like, people didn't even know that games and exercises right. that come originally from theatre that already been integrated into, you know, yeah, adults learning. A lot of it's coming from, from improv, as in the Chicago improv, like Second City and all of that. So that had happened in the US itself, that uh, business trainers had picked up on improv skills and stuff, so, and they travelled to other parts of the world. Um, but that was my profession, actually. Um, yeah. And then that 
quickly got very boring. Plus, um, you know, uh, the night shifts begin to take a toll on your health. I mean, those especially this three month period uh, when I was professionally doing very well. This would have been, I think, 2005, six around that time. Except that um, in three, three and a half months, there wasn't a day when I did not do the 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. kind of thing. And at the end of that, my body was really beginning to kind of get right. ravaged and um, wasn't happening for me. So that's when I kind of decided to shift from that. I continued to kind of do it intermittently for some more time, but I kind of weaned off from that gradually. Right. Taught in uh, school for a year and a half in Bangalore, teaching theater and English at the same time. Um, and around that time, this whole nomadic, uh, you know, traveling around, taking workshops, uh, that also started. So, but to answer the question that you asked, like around the time that I dropped out, which would have been 2003, no, I was not at all sure or um, certain that theater is what it was going to be. I mean, I don't even think I had any clue what I wanted to do with my life at that point of time. I was just very, very confused. I just knew that I did not want to stay on in that engineering course anymore. Yeah. But I don't think I I had any idea what I did want to do. I had a, I mean, I I didn't have a similar experience, but for me, I, I went to college thinking I wanted to do engineering. And then after two years, I was like, this makes no sense to me. And even if I do try this, I'm not going to be a good one. And at that point, I started, you know, now that's been so long since I gave all of that up, I I do have this understanding of this whole idea of like, why did we, why do we let 17 year olds feel like they need to decide their entire life right now? You know, like that's the weird pressure that either, you know, parents put it on or society puts it on you, but it's like, at 16, 17, they're supposed to decide really? that, oh, yes, this is the this is the path you're going to take for the rest of your life. And it makes no sense because I don't think we're ready to make a lot of big decisions back then, you know? I mean, see, my take would be this, that this is a problem only for the ones who already inherently are mold breakers. I mean... If I look back um, at most of the people that I went to school with, yeah. so they did not question this at all, right? Uh, they did, I mean, some, including a couple of my closest friends, were actually already very sure that this is what they wanted to do. And, you know, sure enough, these guys are right now like research scientists in an Intel or right, somebody's right. a theoretical physicist in Germany and stuff. So they didn't do that, you know. Um, most of the others were... Uh, again, 80s India, 90s India, so yeah, they were like studious, near enough, and whatever, but um, they were good at following orders given yeah. by parents, teachers, society, whatever, unquestioningly, and not having the sense of what, what do I want to do that. I don't think that question occurred to most people at all. Right. That makes them lucky in a way, because um, they escaped a lot of... Uh, pain and (laughs) you know most uh, most uh, I mean if you look at it through a usual like a conventional lens so the guys that I'm talking about they are um, 
AVPs or senior vice presidents or whatever. And I mean, I'm 38. So, you know, my peers, we're all like in the late 30s, about to hit 40, et cetera. Yeah. So these are the people who have like by conventional parameters, they've done brilliantly in life. That's because they never questioned what they're going through now is a different right. matter because I've had private conversations with friends that I've reconnected with in recent times. And of course, many of them are like really not enjoying things at all, like not at all. Yeah. Uh, but if you look at the external side of it at that point of time, they did not question. They did fabulously in their engineering and entrance examinations. Some went to, some went to the uh, premier um, local, uh, you know, the Calcutta engineering colleges. And uh, immediately after that, most went into an MBA, whatever, uh, off to the U.S. Uh, in the next few years. Da, yeah. da, da. So, yeah, now these guys are like scattered all over the world. Someone's in Zurich and someone's in Cincinnati and um, they're doing fantastically. But as I said, then there's up to it. So that happens later for some yeah, happens earlier for a lot of us, you know, for me or for you, from what I hear, uh, these, uh, <laughs> these sort of uh, deviant wiring of the brain was there at that stage right. itself, which is why this was even a thing for us, that it mattered at all, because it did yeah. not matter to most people. They were just content doing what they were told to do. That's interesting. So, you know... So, yeah. I mean, what I'm trying to say is that it's an individual thing. It, it depends on the 17-year-old because I've just talked about three different types. Of the, I mean, one who really absolutely, completely knew that this was their meaning and purpose in life and they're living it still and they're fantastically happy. They couldn't be happier because, like, you know, they are they are what they do. Right. Uh, the second, by and large, largest, probably 80% who kind of, you know, just did what they were told to do and some probably don't even question whether they're happy. I mean, it's, it's not even, honestly, like how many people do really question that? Like, right. am I happy? You know, people are content living out their lives and good for them if it works for them that right. way. Contentment sometimes maybe, you know, <laughs> is, um, as I said, a, 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 a less painful right, yeah. thing than finding Can't one's help but envy that sometimes. and all that. Because of course it's, yes, don't we? I mean, in the sense Sometimes, that, yeah. <laughs> it's not an easy path that one chooses to walk down. It has a lot of thorns and a lot of obstacles. And you, yeah, it's it's not pretty. It's not pretty. Yeah. So that way. So and Whether, then the third category would be you know the mold breakers and the questioners. And I wonder. That, sorry, you were saying. Yeah, no, I was I was just gonna talk about that. That there's because the the experience I've had, you know, dealing with a lot of creative people with what I do and through this podcast is like, I'm trying to figure out if there is a way to understand that, to understand that thing inside creative people that, cause for me, you know, like I, I write stories, I write things that are like short stories and plays kind of uh, structure. And for me, I, right. I like to call it like, I like to say that every story I read is, a, is an answer to a question I'm curious about. And for me, like then I try to, use that idea and, and say that for me, creativity is about questioning things around you and things in your head. So like what you were saying, you know, that, that those mold breakers who are, who are questioning, are, am I happy? Am I content? Is this the way things should be? I wonder if, if that is the common thread that you can find with creative people in different 
in different genres of of creativity but is that the thing that yes, that they have I, in common I'd right imagine that so. they question yes. everything yeah. i think i mean there's no one way of um you know uh resolving this question yeah, um yeah. because uh, at one level like in fact i've uh, put up uh, an article or something long time ago uh saying the creativity is uh, essentially the art of seeing patterns it's not about doing you know new things of pulling rabbits out of hats but really i mean i've just i keep writing on you know very variations of the same theme uh, yeah. every now and then but that it essentially is about really uh learning to look at um the elemental the fundamental the simplest of things that's uh true but at the same level and i i at a deep at the deepest level there isn't a contradiction it's an apparent paradox but it's not really hmm. um so what i'm going to say now is that um one thing that is essential i think is a sort of cognitive dissonance a dissatisfaction right. a sense of something not quite being um in rhythm so to say i mean again now where i am in life i talk about flow state or whatever I mean, obviously you know at time nobody thinks of it in these terms but that's what it is that we unconsciously seek flow we seek this sense of um of something larger than life or a higher purpose and we don't find it around so there right. it, it starts with this cognitive dissonance um and the satisfaction and there's a lot of romantic glorification of pain that the artists need the pain is an outcome it's consequence that so glorifying that is of course a little misguided and i right. myself done it at a bunch of time in life um but the questioning and the dissatisfaction with the status quo in some ways that is that is important the raving and ranting and the raging in whatever way you may be the politest person outside but uh, every truly creative person at some level deep inside is also angry angry in a positive way as in you kind of you know want to um uh you have some sense of of um harmony inside and you uh, uh you know there's some sort of something is out of step something is out of phase between what you feel inside and what you experience in the external world yeah. and you try to bring these things back in phase i mean if i go back to you know whatever i remember of my scientific education it is exactly like that it's trying to feel a sense of harmony uh, yeah. a sense of resonance um and you don't feel that you you Uh, feel out of phase with it and you want to rectify that and so yes it is a response it is the whole journey is trying to answer these questions except that there never are any answers it's like yeah. always about asking questions and more questions right so that act of questioning lies at the root of um the whole creative act except that and this is really very subtle so difficult to put into words but it's not questioning for the sake of questioning it is more an inductive thing if that makes sense that you kind of see sense something a certain part right. you don't really see all of it but you sense it hmm. it's sort of like when you're writing a play perhaps in your head in subjective um psychological time you have the entire thing in a moment which hmm. is really a moment outside of time 
and then you keep asking questions and the thing slowly reveals itself yeah bit by yeah. bit by bit and that's just pushing you're not making a discovering right um uh sometimes in some context I've completely forgotten the context here, but many many years ago I read, uh, read something somewhere about uh, how mozart apparently uh felt or sensed or experienced entire musical compositions in one instant in his head and I, uh, oh i think yeah 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 there's this amazing book called the emperor's new mind by roger penrose uh again in the 90s and all the first things to talk about consciousness artificial intelligence i think somewhere in there he talks about um real external time and subjective time and so it's a massive book so I've totally forgotten the context but yeah it's there that i think i read this um talks about how mozart uh literally composed instantaneously in his head yeah uh it may have taken hours in terms of real time but yeah he was so and he was of course trying to relate structures of consciousness to uh, deeper theories of quantum mechanics and all of that but that part of it is very hairy so i don't remember that anymore yeah. but uh, yes but yes um it is something like that uh, when we are working on a specific creative process and i think that is true for the creative process per se the creative process in general um is this uh it is kind of trying to find some sort of source some sort of center and uh you know asking questions uh trying to discover yeah. one step after another that reminds me of this thing that i read uh, i read recently that keith richards uh, he said this a while ago but uh he was talking about people were asking him about how he writes songs because he's you know he's written some pretty cool songs and he said that he considers himself to be that he's not the one writing them he says that i'm he's more of an antenna and then someone is like the this his creative something is writing through him and then he also said that that there's only one song that was a, that there's only one original song and that was written by Adam and Eve and everything that he does or everything that anyone else does is a variation on that theme you know and i know exactly what he's saying i mean um because you know regardless of uh quality or how recognized we are but i think anybody who's truly um jumped into this uh dived into this um is this is exactly what we all feel i suppose that uh, in in the moments when i've experienced um the greatest uh, well what have been my greatest uh, moments let's just say whether on stage or in the rehearsal floor or the workshop floor does not matter but um there are these think you moments when you feel as if in a sort of sound like all very mystical here but as if there's like a a, a veil I mean something literally just yeah. goes whoosh yeah. and you know things just expand and open like in Blake's language the doors of perception etc it happens i mean it may entirely be something hardwired into the uh, the physical structure of brains the chemicals and something beyond that whatever it is but you know that that's just like a 
the mechanics of it, but through that something happens. Exactly how you feel. I think I've even written about it again in different ways at different times. That um, you know, you are. It's as the Sufis uh, say, especially in uh, the Levi or the Rumi's followers, uh, that it's like you are the instrument of grace. Something bigger or greater, some great higher energy, um, just suddenly picking you up, like literally yeah. the, the sensation, the feeling is of something picking you up uh, and sort of like whirling you around. And at the same time that uh, even what I do now, of course, like hours and hours of rigorous, precise, detailed, meticulous work, um, the, uh, the precision, the, uh, the craft, that and the spontaneity, the flow, the radiance, I keep using the word radiance and grace a lot, they're one and the same thing. They're mm. just one and the same thing. They're not, uh, you know, contradictory things, although we perceive them as contradictions. I hope I can say this correctly. You're, you have this, this, this practice called the Jyotir Gamaya Natya Kalari, right? That's just my banner. Oh, that's yeah, the name of the... Of my, it's a company. Right, the company. Yes, yes. So... The banner which I use. Huh. That's, that's interesting. You know, I, so I, I also, a little bit like you, uh, presume that I could teach something that I had barely started learning myself. I did that when I was in college. I started teaching these little uh, classes, but I was teaching finance initially. So it was a little different. But yeah, I and and over the years I've st- I've stuck to teaching, but now I teach more writing and, and 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 storytelling. But for me, you know, the thing that I've noticed, and I think it's similar to what you were just talking right. about about it being about the learning. I think what I've noticed, because I I particularly believe I have a pretty healthy self-inflicted ego. You know, like it's 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 a lot of the time everything is about me. And I felt like when I'm teaching, it's one of those few moments where it's devoid of me. Like there's, I'm like in those, in those particular moments where I'm uh, talking to someone about something that I really am interested in and they can use in that moment when you feel like you're really getting through to someone, you're helping someone learn something that they didn't know before. In that moment, yep. I realize that I'm no longer looking inward, and everything is not about me. But it's very, it's very, it's very True. brief. True. Yeah, my ego yeah. comes back as soon as I'm done. Or if it's only looking inward, then it's in a, in a completely different, much holistic sense where where the in and out. I mean, you know, still gazing and not being. Oh yeah, I'm not know, looking at I'm not looking at myself. Uh, I'm I'm looking at everyone else as well. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yes, yeah. You, yeah, you're not preening in front of the mirror, not at all. There is, I mean, a lot of uh, introspection, active introspection as in in the moment, really in the flow. As yeah. you see something, it reveals itself to you. Um, that happens. So yes, I mean, uh, the the narrow sense of self, this, I kind of make a distinction between um, self consciousness and self-awareness at times all the times that's also false distinction but anyway um and so you're in space of awareness not uh limiting the consciousness you know i as i was speaking with you um 
I told you that I have this little notebook, which is essentially about yeah, like yeah. Uh, sudden moments of elimination on the workshop floor. I'm just looking at it. So as I said, that the deepest moments of um, insight have come through moments of teaching, and this kind of relates to what we've been talking about of of you know being uh, devoid, of being emptied of oneself, because this yeah. is, I think, some um, something. Workshop I was taking in Delhi, um, 2014 perhaps, and just happened to write. There's a lot of these are just very like on the fly, very yeah. cryptic. But there's this line which says, "What is in the body and is yet not the body." And they've gone on to write that. Uh, so this pr- the process that I've been working on, the process or methodology, I kind of give it a name. I call it Sahrudaya. I also call it Theater of Resonance. Right, right. So I think this. This is the first time about four years ago that um, this literally came to me on the workshop floor. So I'd have written this down uh, during a break or something. Yeah. And uh, I've written here that, you know, what I'm trying to talk about is this sense of something sympathetic like resonance strength, not pity. Hmm. Something which is of one heart. Heart quite literally beating together. And in my case, I actually work a lot with the breath and an ensemble connected by like a common uh, rhythm, a common breath. So it's literal in my case. It's like, it's like literal and right. physical. Like, I try to get everybody to, like, you know, one breath, the whole ensemble. And then from that come variations. It's like jazz. You have a bass rhythm, then you sing a bass. Yeah. Something like that. And then I'd gone on to write that this does not mean loss of individuality. It means being so open, so vulnerable, so responsive to the other that I feel with an unbearable intensity my own human essence. Mm. Something flows through me that is not me. It is flowing through us, but it is not you, not me. It is born in our meeting, but is beyond us, made by us, but greater than us. Call it spirit or call it simply it. We are unafraid. We feel no need to hide, to pretend. We are who we are, looking just to look, walking just to walk, Breathing, just to breathe. So stuff like this, like yeah. these things have come to me. I was actually engaged in the act of teaching, taking workshops, you know? Yeah. No, that's, that's amazing. I, I can, the, I mean, it's going to take me a while to, to, to process that. So I'm going to process it when I listen to it as a listener. <laughs> and not as the person yeah, talking to I you. Kind of, yeah. 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 <laughs> no, no. I know that you you are recording this little video. Yeah, and you know the 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 thing that I absolutely love that idea, and I I do subscribe to it. That that the every time I'm telling a story, I feel much better knowing that I can't always tell the story. That I can only tell the story right now, and that makes me want to write it more. Because I know that if I try to write it a week from now, I will lose whatever is in the moment right now. But then I think the 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 the, the problem happens when I'm done writing it, and when I'm really happy with what I've done, and then I get this feeling that that come that makes me feel empty because I feel like oh that's the last time I'm ever going to write anything, because this is I don't know if I'm ever going to have that feeling again, and that fear seems to always happen even though I still end up writing again, you know? So I don't know if the fear is completely part of the process or if it's something I can, I can fix. I'm, I'm not sure if, if I even want to fix it. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. Is that something that you, you felt? 
I felt and I continue to feel because again, the medium does not matter whether it was writing or now when it says actually make uh, performances or even workshops like when you teach a workshop that in itself is a performance that's like you know a creative act designing it in your head it happens all the time or something works particularly like yeah. you just try something and you know a certain improvisation on the workshop floor and um, it just happens like that and it's beautiful but as soon as it finishes it's like uh, you know be a bit suspicious. It's a bit like post-coital depression. It's exactly what it is in a way, I suppose. Because yeah. this is like quite literally, it's creative. So some similar neurobiological factors are, I'm sure, at play between, you know, sex and the creative act. Um, yeah. I mean, similar hormones probably flow deep inside. Uh, because that's exactly um, you know, what you feel. And the same kind of emptiness that you sometimes feel after, like particularly glorious lovemaking, is how you also feel um, of like something's really caught in your in zone, and then you're like, "But I'm never going to experience this again." And it's kind of heartbreaking because all this beauty, this light, and then you know, it's just gone. Yeah, I mean. It was there one moment, and you know that it's meant to go, that it can't last. Yeah, but yeah. Yes. I think, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if, if my young audience, if I should say this in front of our audience, but I do think that if, if, if we always felt like we were having an orgasm, we would, it wouldn't be special. You know, it would, we would just be used to it. And we would True. create something else that sorry, was orgasm. Sorry, this also meant for young adults uh, so you need to edit yeah 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 I, yeah I think no yours but, can yeah I can yeah. keep some of yours but not mine no no I've gone on to that if I, 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 I just it slipped my mind this is also going out to like teen, I mean not to that people know any of this or you know the yeah. No, no, we have we have students. They're they're teenagers and college kids, so most of them know what we're talking about. Exactly. Yeah. yeah but yeah, this is yeah. also, I, I think, it is value and meaning that um, that it is what it is. So, at some level, I'm sorry, I'm just going to dwell on this a minute. Uh, sure, sure. It's also relevant that if creativity is like the the erotic, the sexual act. It also means that the sexual act itself is one of our highest expressions, one of our highest creative expressions, yeah. therefore not something to be ashamed of. Absolutely. Uh, it's something to love and to revel in our own sexuality, whatever be um, the expression of sexuality. It is beautiful. It's what makes us human. It's why and how we here. Um, so... You know, I mean, it's 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 not something to uh, stating the obvious. It's a kind of obvious that even now, unfortunately, needs to be stated yeah, because yeah. even now there is so much um, shame around it. Uh, I mean, if A is B, then B is also A, isn't it? Yeah, that, you yeah. Know, this this is where it comes from, like really deep down, um, when you cook something particular. Great, or you eat, or you, you know, uh, you sing, or you listen to a song. Either which way, the experience 
is um, uh, very close to to orgasmic, as yeah. you said. I mean, you know, in its highest expression, when it is coming from a place of love, it is also something sublime. Yeah. We can turn it into um, something that is only of the flesh, but it's, it's not necessarily so. So, anyway, that. No, no, yeah, I'm gonna body, keep it because I, I decide. I decide what stays. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're we're already over an hour, so I don't want to keep you for too long. But I am. I I did have a couple questions. Uh, one of them being. No, sure, that's okay. Yeah, one of them being, what is the Hamlet dance? Okay. And and, and how did you come about doing something like that? So that's just a name I'd given to this workshop. It's not like a form or something. It's more metaphorical. So I used yeah. to do a performance. I used to do a solo performance. That was called If It Be Now, which is a quote from Hamlet. Right. It's one of the final things. It's, it's this great, great um, monologue he has where he says that there is a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If it be now, it is not to come. If it be not to come, it will be not now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all, since no man is also what he leaves behind, what is to leave the time, let be. So that, in a way, has, like, although after that he has a fight and he dies and he says, yeah. rest in silence <laughs> and all that, these are among the greatest words ever spoken on stage, yeah. I suppose. I mean, and the whole journey from his existential angst and doubt and confusion and he says to be or not to be to this moment and then he says let's be which for me is uh you know it's like a bhakti saint speaking it's like a sufi speaking it's very mystical it's yeah, spiritual yeah. for me that, that's the moment so i've taken the name of my entire solo um which was as much about hamlet as it was about my own journey a lot of my work is internally autobiographical all my work right. in fact uh it's not like externally about my literal life, although sometimes I mix in biographical, biographical text, but internally uh, it is. So anyway, uh, and this workshop uh, was kind of related to that performance. I mean, I sometimes do this, I, you know, to go along with the performance, there's like a specific pedagogy. Uh, of course, it is, in many ways, the same as any workshop I take, you know, the specific techniques, whatever. But the fact that it has come out of a certain mind space um, makes it related to a specific performance right. project. So Hamlet dance, dance, I'm kind of using it um, in a more inward sense, uh, in a more metaphorical way, like, Nietzsche keeps talking about dancing, for instance, and Nietzsche was one of the inspirations, and you know, it's like I was reading something like him at that point of time. So dance, and more in the sense of the, the inner dance. Um, mm. But of course, also that it is a very physical process. I mean, my theater work is extremely physical. It's very intensely body-based. Um, so, so that's why I call it uh, Hamlet. Yeah, dance and uh, uh, there's a video of that, you know, which is there on the LinkedIn file. So if you saw that, this was being done with a theater group in Kerala, a very very good theater group. So there's only yeah. three people. But yeah, all I saw three of them are fantastic actors, fantastic yeah. performance. Yes, you've seen that. I mean, the old gentleman, especially his uh, like one of the foremost actor directors in Kerala, and he's amazing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Again, I learned so much. I mean, I was 
It was hard uh, to keep your eyes off. Leaving that workshop with the getting absolutely like his his incredible just to know Raghutamadasu's name is like I just gave little stimuli and suggestions and where he took it and they were just having a ball completely. Yeah. So if you see the video, then you can kind of understand why it's just to take to literally embody the idea of Hamlet yeah. to find your own Hamlet. So to say, through all the senses and, you know, between the body and the space and words, it's the sort of tapestry that you're weaving it through action and word and space. So, again, Hamlet done. Fantastic. I, I, you know, my favorite thing about whenever I watch something or read something, I always want to know the behind the scenes. Uh, what I want to ask people at the end is... If, there, if you could imagine uh, a, a teenage version of you, someone who is like you, someone who has your personality and your thought process, if you could imagine someone like you mm-hmm. listening to this, what kind of message would you like, like little piece of you know, advice, wisdom, would you like to throw their way as they begin their journey of figuring out how they want to apply their, their creative <laughs> you know, voice? I think me would be a very bad role model for the teenage to me. I mean, you know, given that I've landed up as present me, I don't know if I'd want my teenage well, self. Well, this isn't this isn't a in Back the to the Future. Let's joke. fix the past. <laughs> no, um, specific to myself. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, the one thing that I'd I'd probably say, and uh, thing I'd say to my second version also is, uh, sometimes to to care a little less. Maybe I mean that sounds funny because we talk about being passionate, etc. Yeah. All the time, yes. But sometimes we care too much, and you know the. The, the older me has learned that you will stumble and fall and there will be tears and that the world will hurt you. Uh, it's not something that people do because they're out to get you. It's just yeah. what the nature of the world is that the ones who fall through the cracks is what we were talking about earlier in the conversation. Yeah. Um, well, then the system doesn't always like that and sometimes uh, it's important to uh, to hold but to hold a little lightly perhaps um, so now I've gotten to that stage but that is also the journey in life but um, to be less angry at times to be less righteous that's the that's something I've really you know had to learn the hard way to be less self-righteous, let's just say, because righteousness right. in itself is not a bad thing, but um, yeah, but um, to to tread more lightly, I mean, in a metaphorical way of saying is to tread more lightly to um, to have ideals there, but um, also to be more uh, forgiving of people and to also look at things not only from one's own perspective but uh, that of 
others as well because when we are really passionate about something and and we deeply completely focused on that sometimes it also really narrows our perspective and again there is no right or wrong about this there's no one way about this because that's needed like it right you know uh you really got to devote yourself to this one thing and you need that but also um you know uh you also need to uh step back a little at times except that i don't know if uh the teenage me would have made much sense of that because that is also the journey in the life yeah each thing in its own type uh so yeah yeah but that is the one thing that i just said i mean this is not like general generic ad- advice because i'm really bad at that honestly that motivates etc but um yeah honestly but this is something i just specifically said to myself and well if there are others out there really driven intense kids um maybe a little quote unquote social dysfunctional as i was it's just to tell them that yeah it's 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 okay that you know we do get hurt by the world um but it's okay and sometimes kind of just open up more to other people also and to as i said to tread lightly even as we walk our path